Stay hungry, stay foolish. Peer review is the foundation for measuring employee performance. But does it help employees realize their full potential? Does feedback improve a company's bottom line? No More Feedback is book one in our guest New Toxic Practice book series. This book disrupts commonly held beliefs to reveal the following. Why feedback undermines employee development. The impact feedback has on our three core human capabilities. The alternative that leads to self-regulating employees. Utilizing examples from our decades of work, learn the flaws in the feedback trap and build conditions for employees to flourish for long-term success. We welcome author of No More Feedback, Cultivate Consciousness at Work, Carol Sanford. Welcome to the show. Hi, Aidan. Great to be with you. It's great to have you on the show, Carol. You start this book with the question I'd ask myself as a former professional athlete, because I'm a believer that feedback is essential, but you beat me to the question, without feedback, how would we know how others see us? How would we get better at what we would do? Well... I think that people have a misunderstanding about feedback in so many ways. One of them is that it's a capability, not a hardwired thing. So your question came from, I don't have the capability to see myself or I'm hardwired. I can't see inside myself. And it really is possible. In fact, I've done it for 43 years now. Building capability and everything from parents raising their children to corporate CEOs at DuPont and Google learning how to engage an organization so that everyone has the capability to see themselves. Now, the power of an organization where you have 100% of people who can see their own behavior, make appropriate interpretations, see the effects of what they're doing, connect that all the way out into the market is phenomenal. It's worth so much money, it's hard to calculate. The reason we got to where we are, just one little quick taste here, is that in the early 1900s, a guy named John Watson, among other people, decided because you couldn't directly study consciousness and study the brain and how it worked, that it didn't exist because it couldn't be observed with instruments. So all the studies that happened after that assumed that you had to have someone else looking at you or else it wasn't science. What we're trying to do is bring back that this is very learnable. In fact, it's very important. You can't have democracies work without it. You can't have families and children growing up. If you have children growing up that have only feedback from outside from their parents, they also accept primarily feedback from their peers. And this is one of the big questions I get asked about from parents, even when I'm companies. How do I stop my kids who are following all their friends? I said, stop being their source of what's right and wrong and how they're supposed to think. You can't teach them ethics. You have to develop that capacity. Yeah, so this idea of self-regulation is absolutely key. We'll come back to that because I'd first love to share your own experience of feedback as a budding college professor, Carol, because this is where you realized something was amiss. Oh, yeah. I debated putting that story in the book, but I um, was a professor at San Jose State University, uh, not a full professor. This is when I was very early and young, starting assistant and then associate. The very first thing that I was asked to do when I moved into one department was to engage in this 360-degree feedback. And the guy who had the program, who was delightful. I mean, everybody in this program was really delightful. But he had, in the military, I think in the Army, had learned this idea about feedback. And he had purchased a program. He had all of his faculty and staff doing this with one another, everybody giving people feedback. And it was against a set of competencies. And that's not the only way you can do it. But I want to get everybody clear. There's no such thing as good feedback. And we'll come back to that. People will say, well, it's just how they do it. No, it's not how you do it. So my experience was that I was given a set of questions, I guess they were. I was trying to think, what, remember what form it came in. I'm an old lady. That was a long time ago. And when I was given them, I was asked to reflect on myself in regard to these questions, write them up. And then I was going to hear from others what they thought, uh, all in a way that I wouldn't know who said it. 
which is fine. That doesn't help. Or even knowing who said it doesn't help. What I noticed immediately was the things that were on the feedback list didn't make much sense to me. Like one of them, I think the one that finally threw me completely was that you were able to present your lectures in a way that they were immediately graspable. And I'm sure I don't remember the exact words, but the idea was you're clear, concise, making it possible for your students to really, quote, learn and acquire the knowledge that you had. Now, that seems like a logical thing, but it violated a foundational epistemology. That means how people learn for me. And it's one of the reasons I've actually been hired is because I had such a great track record with the first few years I'd been in the school there. That is that people do better if they have to extract out of things and test them to apply them. And I did everything experientially, Socratically, and it was a powerful way to teach. And I realized as soon as I got the, quote, feedback from everyone else's school, most people were saying to me, you need to write out your curriculum. You need to have it in an orderly way so that the logic flows one step on the other. Think about yourself trying to take notes with it. And I I nearly went crazy because it was like everything I am, everything I stand for, and this one little thing violated what it was that I was really good at. I went to the um, head of the program, the dean, who was the head of this program and had initiated this and tried to share this with him. He said, well, you can still teach the way you want to, but you had to, the people are just telling you that it's not going to work. Well, I left. I actually, it took me about a year, maybe a little longer. And I realized if this is the way they were going to do school, and of course, I was in my late 20s at that point, just having finished my graduate work. But I left because I realized that the system of feedback was going to undermine my, what I call my essence, and that I was nowhere to be found in the list of things they were talking about. Plus, I came to believe, and this is what made me really leave, is that it was going to undermine the students for me to change to follow the feedback. Now, don't get caught up in that that's not your story. The process is that whatever the feedback comes, it has come from people who don't have the experience inside of you. They have their own projections and including their gender bias, their racial bias, all of those things get projected onto the person that they're giving feedback to. And even when you have a bunch of people doing it, you have all these collective agreements that are made not overtly but are underlying, and I begin to be able to see this in my department, they're underlying. What a group agrees on is the uh, common behavioral practice. So you can already see how this, I could see this was going to undermine innovation, everything I believed in. The only sad part of the story, and I'll pause here, is I found that by leaving the university, I did not escape feedback. It was everywhere. And I felt it was a real pity that we can make people starting out as children feel their ideas are wrong, persuade them to fit in for fear of being ostracized. And this is what would happen many people in your position back then in college, because you want to do this, you want to pursue this role, and you feel that you have to fit in, and this is what you need to do. It's almost like a huge sacrifice you need to make. And one thing I had not thought of is when somebody gives us feedback, it's based on their standards, their preconceptions, their biases, as you say. And I thought about that quote about everything's built on the shoulders of giants, but sometimes the shoulders of giants can be wrong. And if we build upon wrong preconceptions, you'll never discover, you'll never innovate, you'll never come up with new ideas. And you know, we're never taught about this idea of cognitive bias. We're not taught the idea that what we see in quotes I'm doing, it's not necessarily reality. It's all projection that comes from passing through our life experience. The other thing is it always comes from what we think they should do. And that process may have nothing to do about where they're going with their life. If anyone had asked me when I was at San Jose State University where I was going, I knew even very young that I wanted to change foundationally how education happened, that I had had a couple of professors. I went to UC Berkeley and I studied with Thomas Kuhn, who's the guy who created paradigm 
as an idea and shifting paradigms and becoming aware that it drives science. And it blew my world apart. I mean, it changed forever my ability to discern what I saw. There's no discernment in feedback. And so this young child or young student or young faculty member, in my case, all is bounded and pulled inside of something that has nothing necessarily where they're going. And so my starting point when we get to talking about alternatives is you need to know and structure systems so that you can actually have that in place. Then people have something to do their own reflection with, which is going to be the substitute for feedback. You mentioned there a word discernment, and you start off the book by talking about false certainties and how there are five main challenges to discernment. Well, what I was doing when I wrote this book is I talked about cultural dependency is one of the major things that makes us get blinded. It's like we put blinders on and we're not allowed to see it or believe it if our group, our tribe doesn't believe it. There's also no process available to help us manage that internal projection bias. You need to have shared frameworks about what we're agreeing something ought to look like that the person who is trying to assess themselves rather than be assessed by others can use. We we don't provide that. In this culture growing up, kids learn what's right and wrong by someone telling them it's right and wrong, not by learning here are some frameworks, principles. I mean, there are many ways to do this, which could help you know where to go. The other thing that's really a challenge for all of us is we fall into whatever is familiar seems right. I'm always worried when people tell me their intuition is or their gut instinct is because 90% of that, and it's not that we don't have the capacity for some intuition and gut check, but most of the time we're gut checking against what's familiar and the familiar will always feel right to us just because it's contrasted with that which is unfamiliar. And when it's unfamiliar, we can't understand it. We think it's abstract. We think it's biased. There are so many things we project on it. So being able to notice that we're judging what's right based on familiar and agreements and these cultural dependency is really important. We need to belong. It's a really important thing to feel like we belong. And so it is heartbreaking to me, to see people who mechanically fall within their cultural paradigm, within the paradigm and and confinements they have, and within the cognitive biases, and they don't learn to discern. And I think that I, as a child, we don't have time to go through this whole story today, but as a young child, I disagreed continuously, including with a very difficult father who was violent, who was determined he would break my spirit. And I could see things somehow. And I think the more he told me I was wrong, the more I kept trying to figure out why was I seeing something so different than he was. That's I actually want all children to be raised with discernment. And I have one group that works with just parents to try and help them learn that way. But it needs to become core to schools and to business engagement processes that people learn how to see these biases, these cultural agreements they have about what it's right to know, what it's wrong to know, how you can come to answers. So I'm with you. It's very disturbing to have those things jump into place and people get cut short at a very young age. And one of the things that brings to mind is that feedback is based on an external feedback. So it's coming from someone else. So what it doesn't do is give you an intrinsic feel for what you feel is right. So you mentioned intuition and things like that. So therefore it kills new ideas. And I thought about this deeply because I was thinking if you do that to a child and you create early days, even before they go into a workplace or in school, you create that everything's based on what somebody else thinks. And that's kind of, that's a course correction for you. Then you'll never trust yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of people who do go on to create things, and like like you said, as you as a child, there's very few people who have the, the neck thick enough, is what we say in Ireland, you have a thick neck. If your neck yeah. is thick enough to actually just ignore the naysayers, ignore the people who tell you you're wrong, you're crazy, or you're a weirdo, and 
the real change makers do that. But also within those change makers, you actually have some people who are quite toxic themselves and they don't really care what other people think and they'll walk over them and step over them. And many, many entrepreneurs and founders are like this. So they ignore feedback and they use people to get ahead. So there's two kind of change makers you have. There's ones who are empathetic, like like it comes across in buckets that you are. And then you have people who are almost psychopathic who use other people and are ign ignorant to feedback from other people. Well, you're getting into talking about something else I bring forward in the book. And first, I do agree with you about one of the characteristics I think that is entrepreneurial is we are determined to trust ourselves. And I think many, and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, I have programs for them and everything, and communities they're part of. And one of the things they learn at a very young age, or maybe come into the world with it, who knows, is that they have to not listen to other people in order to make sense. And that, as you point out, can skew in different directions. Because one of the characteristics I talk about that feedback undermines that is so core to entrepreneurship, it's core to innovation, which you talk a lot about, is these three human characteristics. And one of them is external considering. Uh, the ability to see the, my effects on others in the world and to make choices about what helps the world work, not just what works for me. So we have to get beyond the idea that it's all about me and being self-referential and Feedback causes people to begin to look at themselves and when you hear things that you don't agree with, and that can be good or bad. There's no, It's not about people giving good feedback so you balance the bad feedback. No. Anytime people hear something from outside, their own mind, and children do this too. They, they, If you're telling them, oh, that was, you're a good boy, good girl, and you do that over and over again, they begin to see something different in their mind and they don't trust themselves. So this learning, the external considering part as we grow up is really important. And you have to ask kids questions and get them engaged in looking at their effects. Like kid on the playground in a fight, what do you think that, that kid thought when you were yelling at him? Have you ever had anybody yell at you? And you can't do it as a I'm doing a little too much wrong tone in my voice where because now I was trying to determine they get it. Instead, it usually has to be a little later and you're sitting at dinner, supper, depending on where you are in the world. And you say, well, I, w I was just thinking about today how I feel when people are doing things like that. How do you feel? And you keep helping them be able to experience it because that's the capability building. That goes along with the other thing you're talking about, the entrepreneur entrepreneurial energy, which is locus of control. Where does the control rest? Does it rest with the outside world or with me? Because if I say it rests with the outside world, I become a victim or a bully because I'm determining I have to make that world work for me because, and I am being controlled by it. If on the other hand, I say, you know, the buck stops here. What I did, I, you know, if I had it to do again, I wouldn't do it that way. Or it may be things I don't have any actual control of, like a recession comes in and takes my business out, takes us down. The question then is, how am I going to respond? I am responsible for my own responses. The control rests in me. These are two of what I think are the three core capabilities that need to be built starting with children and when they are built well you build an innovative culture you build um, an entrepreneurial spirit whether that's in your own small growing entity or whether that's leading a profit and loss unit within a business or whether it's the head of a whole company this process of being able to grow these capabilities we're talking about so we don't end up with these split humans like you're talking about, which doesn't help innovation at all. Innovation doesn't happen in places where people bully one another or where they don't are not self-reflective and self-managing. You need the self-reflective, you need the self-managing, but you don't need it coming from other people. You need to build it into how you work at the level of process but also at the level of the way you structure systems. Like what I had at San Jose State was systematized feedback. 
And if it has a whole process in it, which takes my thinking away and substitutes it with others who are not working on what I'm working on, then it's not a good system. And then we need to create structures where pay and progression, everything is tied to the initiative, the agency, which individuals exercise toward creating something. Otherwise, ah, I mean, we don't have very functioning human beings on the planet. And I don't know about you, but when I look around the world some days right now, I can see where people are into this external locus control. They're blaming people. They're splitting into things where we mostly agree on many underlying things. It's a mess all around. Yeah, and there's a key line you, you talk about here related to these three human capacities that receiving feedback from others limits our ability to develop our own sense of self. And in yes. a world where many people, the, if you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, most needs, basic needs are met for people. And this is why people are talking about purpose in, in business environments and life, particularly more and more. And the millennials get a hard rap about this. People go, no, they need purpose in the business, etc. But oftentimes you think about it and it starts at a young age where their locus of control or their sense of agency is taken away from them and they're looking for somebody to guide them. But they we do this to them ourselves by the feedback in the playground and those kind of early interactions with feedback in school, in the football pitch or whatever it might be. That's where all right. this starts. One of the things you mentioned in, in introducing me is that in my last book, Before No More Feedback, called The Regenerative Business, I have one chapter that lists the 30 toxic practices which do what we're talking about. I pick feedback as the first one to write about because so many people are convinced, just like you were when you saw the title of my book, that we can't function without it. We've been conditioned to believe that, but it's not the only one. The very nature of how we've structured it, and we won't go into this, but if people are interested, they can go look at those 30 and they'll know what the other writings are that are coming after no more feedback. So absolutely, we undermine starting young and then we designed it into all of our work systems. And we wonder why 70% of people around the world hate coming to work because we've structured it so that people can't evolve, can't be who they are, which means the company can't. Now, when we get to talking a little more about the alternatives, I don't believe in the idea that everybody gets to do what they want and they get to create anything they want to take on. But there are better ways to create structural boundaries than trying to pigeonhole people by typologies and feedback and performance reviews and all the various ways we do, because we want human life to be exciting. We want it to be creative. We want people to bring that to work. We want them to bring it to the, the governance of their country. We want, we want them to bring it to parenting. Unless we get a hold of these three core human capacities, we can't do that. And by the way, I didn't say the third one, so I should say it. So the first one was locus of control. I take responsibility for what I do. And no matter what it is that's going on, even my reactions, I own up to them. I don't use excuses and blame others. Second one is external considering, which for me is on a scale from kindness, which we should be to everyone every day, up to empathy, which is one that some of us can feel, some can't, but the kind of uh, process that we're talking about tend to undermine that. When we have feedback, we lose our empathy because then we're always thinking about what we're considering. My grandmother used to say, don't you think about anybody besides yourself and as a child? Nope, not so much. The third one is compassion, where we want to alleviate others' pain. And that's where we get the Mother Teresa's of the world. But also you can just in any moment sit with someone who is in pain, lost someone, and you can be with them and you can help alleviate. The fourth one is caring. Caring is where we want to grow the capacity and capability of people to be all they can be in the world. And we're not willing to just alleviate their pain or take care of them or have empathy and go away. I say that my work is about caring. It's about caring that people have these three capabilities we're talking about, that they have clarity about who their what their essence is and what they want to do to bring it into the world, how they want to add that to the innovation process they engage in. Those are the four ranges of external considering. Then finally, the third human capacity, which you're really talking a lot about, Aiden, that we undermine early, 
is source of agency. Most of us in this world nowadays, because of the way we've raised children, the way we structure schools, the way we structure work, their agency comes from authority. Whatever the authority is, whether that's my tribe, whether it's my parents, whether it's a professor, which is grading me, whether it's the boss who determines whether I get paid, my agency begins to come from others. And then people wonder why people don't show initiative inside of work because they're conditioned to and reinforced and paid to have their agency come from authority. What you mentioned earlier, the idea of trying to have purpose-driven organizations and missions, which I also think has some problems. I think it needs to come from something less abstract, but that was so much better than when it came from do what your boss tells you. I want the source of agency to come from something I call global imperatives and corporate direction. The direction of a company becomes much more innovative when it's able to embed how the world works when it's whole and complete. So I want agency to come from, for example, things like Hmm. In order for democracies to work, and we seem to be around the world having a little trouble with democracies, people have to be able to see what the world needs. And one of those things is it needs for everyone to have critical thinking skills and personal self-management, self-direction in order for a democracy to work. If we don't understand that that's a societal imperative, We don't think about how core education is. We don't think about how businesses undermine democracy because what they do is they don't increase the capacity to see their effects on others and the company is not helping with it. So this process of being able to see these three human capacities and how we build businesses that undermine them, which you and I are talking about the effect on the person, but it has an effect on democracy, which I've just mentioned, and it has an effect on financial effectiveness. It's directly tied to the ability to manage margins, earnings, and cash flow. And in the work that we do, we tie those directly. And if I could get people to see that teaching people and using feedback is undermining earnings, margins, and cash flow, plus human contribution on the planet, it might make a little more sense. I find it really interesting when you talk about the history of the term feedback, that it's a mechanical term and it suggests self-regulation like the valve on a pressure cooker that turns itself off. But human feedback is other directed or it's externally directed. And this is a real question. You mentioned the term personal agency. And in the world that we're living in, this world of absolute change, really fast change, that calls for cognitive flexibility and personal agency is absolutely key in that world. I only have a chapter on it in the book. I've written about it other places, but it was never applied to humans until the 1960s. Feedback was never applied to humans. How in the world did that leap get made? It had always been in a manufacturing process or a chemistry process. You had to protect yourself against something spilling over hot oil or something that was going to create runaway in the machine and people could get injured. And you put a mechanism on it called a governor. And the governor, I mean, the word itself is pretty clear. It's governing the process. It's not, the process can't govern itself because it's a machine. It's like a closed system. You have to have something from the outside called the governor. And the way the governor worked was some electrical or mechanical process came and touched the governor and flipped it on. None of it had anything to do with it being able to be self-managing. It was all structured in that way. So that term itself led us astray. You can see where it came from. The machine world is is where it had primarily been used. And it was mostly came about through the Industrial Revolution. But there was a group of scientists across many fields which got the Macy's, the people who run uh, the Macy family, who we all know, to sponsor a set of conferences. These went on for, I think, a few years. And the intention was to bring together the hard sciences and the soft sciences. So the physics, the chemistry, the biology, 
and they were called hard sciences because there was, quote, research that showed that they were true and right with the soft sciences, which were primarily psychology. And psychology was a very, very new field. And people wanted recognition. They wanted to be shown to be as credible as the hard sciences. So they all agreed to come to this conference. And there were tons of presentations, most of them. And the conference was driven by the field of cybernetic thinking, which is machines being instigated or driven into artificial intelligence, which is nothing like it is now. This was at a very new time in the world of artificial intelligence. And the whole world believed that the human brain, including psychologists, was like a clock or eventually like a computer. In other words, it was a machine. So all the presentations, all the way things were done, all the conversation that happened at these Macy's conferences were about bringing together the human brain as a machine with the and giving having that become the way that it could be certified as a science. No one wrote up papers for this thing. They just listened to what people were presenting. Nowadays, we have proceedings, but in this one, there was Stephen Joshua Himes, H-E-I-M-S. He went around and interviewed everyone who was there. He was a cyberneticist. So we've already talked about what's in our own head drives what we see. He wrote up and presented to the world that the thing that was linked, one of the things, wasn't the only one, that was linking these hard and soft sciences was this idea of feedback. The human mind had feedback and the machines had feedback. And that became adopted, crazily enough, by all of the psychologists as though they accepted that we were machines and our brains were machines. And the the crazy part here, Aiden, is that's still held. It's still people think of it. They talk about, you read anybody who's writing in a popular psychology way, and they'll write about the mind as a machine. And we study it as a machine. We study it running it through an MRI. Like you can't, uh, people can't see their own brain. And so we put them in a machine. Now we can't see our brain, but we can see the working of our brain if we learn to do that. But we're now stuck in this loop where all the studies that reinforce, including the new neuroscience theory, all come out as though humans have a fixed pathway. And you'll see articles on the cover of Psychology Today that say this is how the mind works. It's very limiting because it's all based so much on this work that the Macy's Conference did. And that's how we got the concept of feedback as just as though we need a governor, which is our boss, our peers, which will shut us off or open up and allow something to flow. All comes from the outside. And you talk about there that machines are closed systems, and this is the distinct difference. Machines are closed systems, but humans are open systems. And because we're open systems, that makes us immeasurable. You cannot measure that. It's intangible, and it's like change. I was thinking about this. It's like change within an organization. Many HR directors will prefer a mechanical system that they can measure rather than a humanic system that's intangible, very difficult to measure. And I'd love if we get to this when we talk about your alternatives to feedback, when we talk about how you measure the change, because that's the difficult thing that many, many leaders have, many well-meaning L&D practitioners, consultants, etc. have, is how do you measure real change? Yeah, let me say one word about this open and closed system. Closed systems have to have things imported. You have to bring the oil to them. You have to bring the water to them. You have to bring the raw materials to them. They can't go out and get it. Humans, on the other hand, do not have to have things imported into them. So every time we're stuffing things into people's heads, our ideas, here's how you should behave, here's the skills you need, here's how this works, we're treating them as a closed system. So that in itself is an incredible breakdown. But let's move back into solutions now. So let's okay. move into your alternatives, and then we'll talk about how you measure that. So one of the things that has to happen is you have to completely reconceptualize how you organize work. Because right now we've organized in hierarchies where some people are smarter, no more than other people. We have assumed that the higher up in the hierarchy you are, the more you're able to give feedback to the people below you. And the stress level of that first makes so many managers sick. But 
it also isn't a very good way to design work. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things that change. And you can't, unfortunately, just go adopt one of these. It's a paradigm shift. But let's keep it right now at least back into the idea of where feedback fits. So in these systems, I assume that you're going to connect everybody in the organization, each individual, to the external world. And I don't mean via a bunch of reports. I mean directly so that they are able to talk to customers, suppliers on an ongoing basis. So I'm going to give you an example. Colgate-Palmolive Europe, during the transition, since um, the show's coming out of the continent anyway, that direction, um, we established something called market field teams. Market field teams are teams that are wrapped around particular aspects of the market. Some of those are customer groups because they're such a large customer group like Carrefour that you need to have an entire field team which is coming to understand them, looking at how to ha where they're going. These teams become strategists for who they're looking at. They become R&D for who they're looking at. And they, there'll be another market field team, which is looking at mom and pop stores on every corner, which is you don't see in the States, but you see it all over Europe and in fact, much of the world. These field teams are made up of a cross-reflection of the entire organization. And they're not problem-solving teams. They're not what do we do internally so that we can get our sales up and all of that? They're actually in service and are connected to the market they're working on. We also had people who were looking at ecological questions and their field that they were trying to work on was how do we increase the capacity we have for a healthy planet? We had others who were actually working on social processes. And people, these are long-term permanent teams which have some rotation in them. These people are constantly doing research about what's happening in their field. They attend the conferences where these people attend. They read the journals these people read. They, they work with teams inside the company who are pre-thinking where they're going, and they may create labs. I have one company that creates labs that you can come to, and they're engaging them and helping think about the future of their, their business and where it's going. This is a design company. And that process has them, when they walk back to their teams, knowing pretty much what's going on in that world. So that's the first step. The second step is that people exercise initiative agency to make proposals to that field team, to the organization as a whole, about what they think could make a huge difference for that. So we had in Colgate-Palmolive a set of folks, and sometimes people do this in a cluster, but you have to all have the agency and the initiative because you have to write a fairly extensive proposal about what you want to do for this particular market. So the mom and pop stores, they have to carry very small amount of things. It's very hard to keep track of how sales are happening, how inventory is happening, why people are buying what they're buying. And there was a team who made a proposal, which about, took about two years to pull off, to give them a little ed education. They had to go pass it by the portfolio team. The portfolio team are the ones who decide what's going to be funded across the company. So that becomes one of the boundaries because the portfolio team is looking at what the overall direction is, the strategy for the company, Colgate in this sense, becoming Colgate Europe. And we were doing this just as the European market was shifting and you no longer had a separate HR department within Greece from what was going on in the UK or Ireland. You had to be able to create something that worked across the system. That portfolio team was paying detailed attention and they were asking questions they were able to allocate a budget. And by the way, these teams on the portfolio team had a high rotating membership who came from everything from people who were in a toothpaste line or a men and deodorant line and helped people figure out what should be funded and how they would go forward. Now, imagine you are on one day running, uh, I shouldn't say one day, every day, you're running an assembly line uh, because many of those, although they're highly automated, they still have people on it. But you're also on one of these market field teams and you're on there with people who are in many different places around the company and they're able to provide information back into the local production team. 
Now we have a place for reflection to happen. I said there's no process, which is one of the reasons it breaks down feedback. It's arbitrary either in somebody's head or in a set of competencies which someone had created. This one is all against what are you going to produce for the people who your market field team is serving and now your proposal, your teams or your individual proposal. This team worked for a couple of years on radically revising, rethinking the information systems. Now, reflection, and let's talk about measurement since you mentioned that a bit. The measurement then becomes how well is the customer, the market, earth, society benefiting from our effort? We tend to measure just like we're a closed system. People try to figure out how do you measure the people? Will you uh, create some arbitrary thing inside? What if you could measure performance and people were self-assessing and their market field team was collectively working with them on, on that, on how their external effects and contribution were paying off? How well were earnings margins and cash flow changing for the customer? Because many of those are distributors like Carrefour in the case of uh, Colgate. But another conversation to understand you actually can use earnings margins and cash flow for individuals too. That process of measuring external in every case to the effect that's being produced is a game changer. Because now, first, innovation goes through the roof. We're innovating for people we know and can see. We don't go through customer feedback processes, which get translated through the company we hire to do the surveys into the marketing group who re rewrites it, into supervisors who break it down into so many chunks, we have no idea who these people are. And so feedback in almost no place is very helpful. I actually think it's pretty good as a governor on a machine that won't let hot oil spill over. But in human systems, you want these connections that are all driven by the external understanding, not the external management. Or you could even say you manage yourself based on what you understand in the external world. Then what you have are ongoing reviews not by someone else, but the team who is committed to these mom and pop stores, you have at least a monthly group where they sit around and they may have people from some of the mom and pop stores who become part of an advisory team on this big new challenge they're going to do for all of them. Or they may not because they know them so well, they can stand in their shoes and then they can go engage them later. But then this team designs its own review or the individual who has made the promise designs, I call them promises beyond ableness, right? We do something we don't know how to do, but we promise to make your life better in doing it. That reflection process, you build capability to do that, to learn to ask Socratic questions. All the things I left San Jose State for because somehow I couldn't figure out how to do it. You make sure that it is not structured by any hierarchy. It's not by others telling you. It's mostly by them asking questions. Now, do you ever get ideas from others? Yes, but you're in charge of that. So when I'm writing a book, I send my books out for uh, review and ask people, how did this affect you? I don't say, what do you think of my book? Because now they're telling me what to do. I say, how did this affect you? What do you see doing with it? I mean, when you sent me what you were getting out of reading this book, that gave me something to make sense of the world from. But it wasn't you using your ideas to impose on me. It was creating a dialogue. Well, the same thing happens when you're in an organization. If you can give up that other people see you better than you see you, you can start with saying, here's what I want help with. Here's where I'm going. Here's what I'd like a thinking partner about. Those sometimes get structured into the organizations where you have two new roles. One of them is a thinking partner. Those can be more permanent in the sense of the market field team, or they can be ephemeral because you just stop people. There are rooms all over the buildings and the new companies we built in uh, like Consolidated Diesel Corporation. I think it's just called CDC now. And in Colgate, where people have a moment with whiteboards from top to bottom, they're using frameworks so they have a shared language, and they can do this kind of thinking together. 
this kind of process of creating people in charge of the review, specifying where they're going, what they're measuring. Here's what we're trying to change. We believe we do this. We can change the margins for this mom and pop store, which is another thing. Mom and pop stores, you know, their margins are just ridiculous. But innovation, if you've got people who've committed to helping that work, we now know when we entered the room on review, oh, all right, we're helping review whether you're making sense out of how margins are calculated. You probably have finance people in the room. You have salespeople in the room. You have maybe even marketing, R&D. The reviews that happen, which are constructed by the team who has said they're going to do it, you can see I've changed tons of structures, tons of systems. You now have a process where you're creating ideas. You're not feeding back on past stuff, on ideas where you don't know what they're working on. You don't know who they are. You can't see yourself and what you're projecting and putting into people's minds and experience. It's much more exciting. And the innovation accelerates. You get a steep hockey stick because people are no longer trying to, are managing all the energy it takes to manage people telling you how to change when they don't really know the inner processing of you. They don't know the goals you personally have or what you see. You don't get anything from them on what you're trying to get the company to work on because you're telling them what they ought to work on. All of that energy just drains an organization of its potential and every human being in it. There's a quote I love that wraps up everything you said there. The highest success in any kind of activity from child rearing to education to business and governments to ecosystems, regeneration and spiritual practice comes from seeing every person as unique and capable of participating in the evolution of systems and programs. I thought that was a lovely line that really encapsulates everything you're saying there because there's three reasons why development beyond financial payoff are so important. And I'd love if you shared those three with us as a way to kind of conclude today's show. So you have to image, and I use a lot of frameworks. They're not models because that's another story. Mental models are another thing that are toxic. But if you image a framework that is nested with three concentric rings, each larger than next, well, let's start with the outer ring. And that is a world that works. And that has to be looked at in terms of systems. You can't just generally say, I'm going to go change the world. I'm suspicious when people say that. Even me, when I forget. It is looking at what would it take to have a criminal justice system work. You know, and Finland's come up with some amazing things. You were saying you have folks there who listen. Finland's come up with some amazing things about how to make criminal justice work. So that people enter a system once. And they, even if that's murder, and they come out a wholly different human being because what it takes to have the criminal justice system work is people can see their own effects and manage their own behavior and first manage their own thinking. The next ring in, so our big outer ring, are these global imperatives that we have to come to understand at the level of systems and what makes them work are happen and are brought about by this inner ring which is those people who work collectively in on that system. So what would happen if we had, I would love it if somehow the United Nations sponsored teams of people that are like my market field teams, which are working on the criminal justice system or the social advancement system or the education system. In companies, we do have some of these folks who come together this way. The second ring are people have to learn to work together. They have to learn to structure these kind of organizations so you can have something that's like a field team, which is responsible for a systems evolution and pulling in all of the people it takes. We do a lot of work with communities. I invite people. I'm, my next book that will be out March is about the nine major roles in society and how we could get people who are playing those roles, everything from educator to media content creator to citizen to economic shaper, to be able to organize and learn in a way that they're contributing to the system's change. But the most inner ring, and it is, um, I put it kind of like at the heart, because it's at the level of every individual essence. And we haven't talked about that much. 
But nature doesn't repeat. It doesn't duplicate. She is, you know, very wise that each entity, each person, each company, each life shed, I don't call them watersheds, that's anthropocentric, they are all unique and distinctive. They each have an essence. Coming to understand that is a really important thing, but I design work systems with people which just have it show up. So in the story I just told you, the market field team that ended up working with the mom and pop stores, there were two people who had parents who had grown up in those mom and pop world, and they came to their market field team, which was working on mom and pop stuff, and they said, we want to make a promise beyond ableness to be able to do something that would transform their ability to manage their margins. That idea came from their essence. No one assigned it to them. It wasn't, quote, delegated, which is another toxic practice. It emerged from them seeing it in the context of all the work that they were doing on the market team, market field team, in all of the context of the work that they were doing with the company's corporate direction, which was bringing uh, more work. I'm, I don't remember the exact words we had, but they had a broader corporate direction, which was about being able to ensure that all distri- distribution s- systems serve the world being healthy. Because that was actually the founding of Colgate Palmolive, was working a lot with not-for-profits. In order to get the essence of the company, you have to go back there. The, the point I'm trying to make here is, You need essence at the heart of that set of systems to be awakened, and it always is shut down, almost completely, always shut down with feedback and with these other toxic practices, which include delegation, other people telling you what to do. Where's the innovation in that? And it always has to be contexted in this second ring, which are teams who are figuring out how to go somewhere, working with others. And third, to be able to bring the right kind of change on the planet that we need and in the social systems that we have. If people want to find you to find out more about your books, the future books, where can they find you? carolsanford.com, C-A-R-O-L-S-A-N-F-O-R-D. I run a fabulous podcast myself called Business Second Opinion, which critiques Harvard Business Review one article at a time. I do have a variety of communities which people can join and become a part of an education. I have a business community, which you will find at carolsanfordinstitute.com, although you can find it off my main page. And all four of my soon-to-be fifth book, you can pre-order it, and you can get no more feedback. Thank you. Author of No More Feedback, Cultivate Consciousness at Work, Carol Sanford, thank you for joining us. That was fun. Really, really fun. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) 